Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 21, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Again, my name is Rick. I am author of last year's The God Who Fights For You, and before that, Spiritual Grit, and before that, The Jesus-Centered Life, and before that, General Editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible. There's a Jesus-y kind of thing running through all of those things. So, And as many of you have been hearing me talk about for a while, uh, my new daily devotional, Jesus Center Daily, coming out October 6th, is right now at the printer. So can't wait for this summer, the, uh, the, that little brown box coming to my house with the first copies of that thing. So we'll be talking more about that um, uh, later on this year and how you can maybe get a little sneak peek of the Jesus Center Daily uh, before it comes out. Uh, we'll, we'll talk some more about that later on, but uh, we're now in our 16th episode of this series on foundations. And basically what we're doing is exploring foundational truths about Jesus and who he is and what his heart's like, and also his mission in our lives. And you could, another way of describing the mission of Jesus in our lives is living in the kingdom of God. That's essentially what he's trying to mentor us into is a life that matches what the culture of the kingdom of God is like. So today's episode is called Some Good News. <laughs> Some Good News. First, a little update, um, a little bit of bad news for those, those of you who haven't uh, heard yet. About three weeks ago, um, uh, on a uh, staff meeting for all of our staff here at Group, our leaders announced that uh, because of the significant hit uh, on our revenue because of the pandemic situation and a, a great deal of our revenue comes from our uh, number one most popular vacation Bible school program that we produce every year. And 70% of churches are not doing vacation Bible school this summer, that that hit was just huge. And uh, our leaders were trying to make uh, adjustments and figure out how to make this work. And in the end, the reality was too much. And so uh, they had to cut a significant number of people at group, and that includes me. So some of you, I probably have mentioned this before, but I have been at group for 33 years. I started there when I was 26. Can't even fathom what a, who I was when I was 26, but it was a long time ago. And because of these decisions about uh, the things sort of in my lane that we're not going to be doing anymore at group, uh, I just had no position anymore. So uh, it was a, I could, you know, I knew, always knew this was a possibility given what has happened to us and to so many during this, these pandemic restrictions. Um, but it still came as obviously as a huge shock. And um, I, I did post on our pigs page, our private Facebook page, for those who listen to this podcast, I posted an update about this a couple of weeks ago to let everybody know and also to let you know that I'm in, um, I was hoping to take this podcast 
with me once I leave group. And group's leaders have graciously said, yes, take it with you. So we're in the midst of figuring out how to transition that over to me um, on the other side of this. And I think what you'll experience is pretty much the same thing as you've always experienced. And I'm going to continue to talk about things that are important to me that group produces. Um, I'll continue to highlight those things um, because uh, it wasn't just a job for me. I put my whole self into everything we did and I'm gonna to continue to do that. I believe in the things that we produce together and I'm gonna to continue to. So um, this will be the next to last podcast episode before my last day on July 1st. And then after that, uh, I'm going to be transitioning all of this over and it may take me a little bit of time to figure out the stuff that now I have to do instead of Julia, the producer. <laughs> so she just walked me through all of the things that she does sort of a, on the back end. And it's going to take me a little bit of a learning curve. So maybe a little bit of a speed bump after July 1st, but we'll come back with new episodes as soon as possible in July. So just wanted to let you know. And um, if you would like to make sure that you're continuing to get this podcast and continue to listen to it, the best way to do that is to sign up um, to, <clears throat> to uh, jump on to the podcast as a uh, basically a member of the podcast uh, so that you get regular updates for it. The other way that you can get regular updates is to join the Pigs page, which I mentioned before. It's a private Facebook page for listeners of the podcast, and it's called the Pigs page because of a chapter in the Jesus Center Life called Living a Pig's Life. Um, and it essentially comes from a t-shirt slogan that a friend of mine shared with me. Uh, it was, the t-shirt was a, an award given to the top customer service performer at the French Laundry restaurant in Northern California, one of the top restaurants in the world. And every year they give a special award to the top waiter or waitress for customer service. And the award is a t-shirt, <laughs> my friend told me, because his daughter, who was a waitress there, won that t-shirt one year. And on the t-shirt, it says, be the pig. And when I asked my friend what that meant, uh, he said uh, it references an old little aphorism that the chicken gives up an egg for the breakfast, but the pig gives everything. So being the pig means you give everything. So the pig's page is for those who want to give their whole self uh, uh, to Jesus. Uh, and maybe you're a person who, who, like me, who thinks, well, I haven't given my whole self to him but I want to, I want to be identified that way. Well, the pig's page is for you too. So it's a place for community to ask questions, to interact with each other, to pose challenges, um, anything you want. Uh, it's a community for people who are drawn to this whole uh, lifestyle of Jesus being at the center of everything you do. So there'll be a link on our podcast page for you to sign up for the pig's page. You have to just click on it and ask to be invited and I'll say yes unless you're an ax murderer. So please, when you, when you ask for your invitation, make sure that your uh, social media photo does not include you shouldering an ax. That, that, that might give me pause. All right, gang, so let's follow the advice here of Maria Von Trapp in The Sound of Music. She said, let's start at the very beginning because it's a very good place to start. So the do-re-mi, did you get that reference? The do-re-mi, of our relationship with Jesus is in Genesis. So I'd like us to focus on one more thing that God said 
in the beginning of all things, that we've heard so much that we typically just jump over this phrase. Uh, it's just so familiar. We're so over familiar with it that it doesn't sink in anymore. So in Genesis 1.31, after God had uh, worked the days and created um, all of creation, the heavens and the earth and the seas and the land and, and all things, it says in Genesis 1.31, then God looked over all he had made and saw that it was very good. God looked over all that he had made and saw that it was very good. If you read before that, every time on each of these creation days, he finished creating something, he looked at it and said, it was good. Um, this is the part that we jump over. What does good really mean? What does good mean? And, and, and especially in the eyes of Jesus, what does good mean? And good's a word that we throw around a lot. I, if, you, uh, if you're one of the millions who, who did this during, during our pandemic restrictions, you watched John Krasinski's uh, little show, Some Good News, usually like a 15, 20-minute show that he released once a week. It first started on a lark. It was an idea his kids had. It caught on. So many people love this show. And it's just a show full of good news that was happening. And it was a break from the sort of relentless beat of bad news that was going on. And so that, that show, I think, lasted eight or nine episodes. And then John Krasinski had to stop. And word is that CBS is going to pick up that show in some way. I, I haven't watched it since then, so I'm not sure what its status is now. But the premise of that show is all around good news. And what's interesting is if we think about God saying he created all this stuff and said it's very good, and then we have a whole show that's about good news, it raises the issue, well, what, what does good mean? I mean, what, what does, what in the end says good? Uh, so that, that's what we're going to explore a little bit um, and, and focus on what good really means. And I'm going to play you in just a second, a little segment uh, from the show where John Krasinski talks about his definition of good. So uh, the, the thing is, this, this uh, qualifier, something is good, um, in, is embedded in all of our life. It, when's the last time you told someone about a good restaurant that you really love or a good film that you, that you want them to watch or a good new TV series that you think is fabulous or a good new book? In every case, you're making a judgment about what good is. Like, for instance, uh, last night uh, in our home group of 20 young adults, we are now um, planted in our backyard to do our gatherings and we social distance back there and uh, we, we do our experiential interactive thing in an inventive way with them distanced from each other. Uh, it, it would take too long to explain how we pulled off this minor miracle, but we're doing it. And last night we did something that we've, we do four or five times during the year, but have never done this outside. We had film night. Um, so uh, once a month or once every other month or so, we uh, invite everyone over and we watch a film that's not about Jesus at all. <laughs> and then we talk about Jesus after it. And they're, they're some of the most life-changing, profound, moving experiences of my life is watching films that are not about Jesus and then talking about Jesus. And last night we did our first one outdoors. So we had a sheet stretched across our trampoline enclosure 
and we had seats out in the yard and we waited till 8.30 when it was darkish. And then we borrowed a projector and we showed a film and then talked about it till 11.15. And the film, uh, wow, this is one of those films that I think I will never get out of my bones. There's something about the way the filmmaker made this film that just sticks with you. It's called The Vast of Night and it's on Amazon Prime right now. It was just released a couple of weeks ago. It was made about a year ago and it's gone through the festival circuit, but then it got picked up by Amazon Prime. It's a very unusual film set in the 1950s and it's kind of a science fiction thriller. And uh, it's, it's just the, the, the style of the film is highly unusual and it leaves you uh, resonating with the feeling of having watched it for a long time. So the first time we watched it, um, I knew nothing about it. My wife, my older daughter and I watched it. We finished watching it. And the first thing my wife said is, I hate that ending. And then about a minute later, she said, let's watch this with our group. <laughs> so, and she hated the ending because the ending produces dissonance and it leaves you in dissonance at the end of the film. Uh, but I loved the ending of the film. I loved the whole film. And maybe the reason I love it is because of that dissonance. Maybe, uh, maybe it just reminds me. I, I think it does. It reminds me of the way Jesus left people in dissonance so often, especially with his stories and parables. He did not wrap up the bow at the end. And sometimes the stories and parables did not end the way you wish they would, uh, also leaving you in dissonance. So uh, this film... I loved, I would call it a really good film. My wife, after that first viewing would say, that's a really bad film. <laughs> so how can we both be right? Why isn't there more of a universal standard on what's truly good? Something that we all agree that yes, that's objectively good. In fact, there's, if you think about it, there are very few universal stand standards for good. Mostly we, return, we, we determine what good is individually. So this gets back to John Krasinski and his show, Some Good News. In that show, he promises to show the true definition of good. So I want, I'm going to play this little clip, a little portion of where he intros what he thinks is good. And I want you to think about this question as you're listening to this. What definition of good is John Krasinski using? How would you describe his definition of good based on what he's about to say? Here we go. And that brings us to our final segment we like to call What This Show Means. Well, on a very personal note, I can tell you that I will never be able to properly articulate just how much this show has meant to me and what a tremendous honor it has been to share in all of it with you. Because the truth is, I have been so blown away by the messages I have received saying how joyful this show makes you how uplifted and inspired you all can be, but I assure you all the pleasure and all the inspiration has been mine. I told you from the very first episode, I only deliver the good news, you are the good news, and that's why every single week, if you can look past the goofy guy wearing half a suit, you'd see what resilience really looks like, what unbroken really means. And through witnessing each and every simple act of kindness and generosity, you would see what the true definition of good really is. We're going to stop it right there. 
And so here, here what you heard were these words, resilience and unbroken, kindness and generosity. These are the qualifiers that John Krasinski is using for how they choose what is good. And if you watch the show, you know that um, a lot of the show is about people overcoming great challenges and people sacrificing on behalf of others when they didn't have to, or people being creative in the midst of a great challenge. Sort of the indomitable human spirit is what's celebrated on that show. And uh, I think it's, it's interesting, again, we would at first say that these qualifiers that John Krasinski is using, resilience, unbroken, generosity of spirit, kindness, of course we all agree those things are good. But if you were gonna to put together a show about some good news, you would certainly make different choices than John Krasinski did, just because your filters for what is good are different. So it goes back to the question, are all of our, is, is goodness essentially individualistic? Is goodness in the eye of the beholder? Well, we've focused on a little throwaway line from Jesus before, uh, this, this one I'm about to give you right now, it's worth returning to. Uh, this, so this comes from his encounter with what we've now called the rich young ruler. This uh, man who's a religious leader, who's amassed a good deal of wealth, and he has followed all the rules and crossed all the, his T's and checked all his boxes. He's a good guy and he knows it. And he approaches Jesus and asks him, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Basically, what do I have to guarantee my place in heaven? Here's all that I've done. What else do I have to do? And, and essentially what he's saying is, what are some more good things that I can add to my long list of good things about myself, Jesus? And Jesus, before he answers his question, pauses and, and first brings up a question that the guy probably wasn't expecting. He says, uh, Jesus says, why do you call me good? Why are you calling me good teacher when you address me? Don't you know that only God is good? And then he leaves that question hanging there. This is one of those things where, again, in a microwave, Jesus is leaving the guy in dissonance right there. Don't you know only God is good? So do you know who you're talking to? Do you get the message? I'm not going to spell it out for you. You're going to have to figure out what I'm doing. So why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. What are all the possible reasons why Jesus is spotlighting this man's sort of innocent greeting before he answers the guy's question. Well, um, the possible reasons that pop into my head are that Jesus thinks that qualifier, good, is super important. I mean, it's embedded in God's dialogue, in, in God's monologue about creation. He's over and over again calling things good. Um, it's important to Jesus that we understand what good is from the perspective of the Trinity, not just what good is from our own perspective, but to somehow ingest his standards for what is good. So, so this good is an important distinction, and we've already experienced how fluid it really is, uh, because we know, like I could go out today and, and tell people, you should see The Vast of Night. What a fantastic film. And I guarantee you some people that go out and watch it based on my recommendation will say, you thought that was good? <laughs> so good is a fluid concept in the way that we use it in our everyday life. And, but Jesus wants us to know, and he wants this rich young ruler to know, 
that the deepest definition of good is not fluid because good is a person. All of goodness is enclosed within the person of Jesus, meaning our definition of good and the Trinity's definition of good is the person of Jesus. <clears throat> whatever he does is good. And whatever he doesn't do or whatever he opposes or whatever he tries to topple is not good. So, so how can we know the standards for good that Jesus uses? How can we adopt his standards for what is good so that we live more fully in the kingdom of God? So again, in Genesis 1.31, God looks over all he's made and he saw that was very good. And uh, all of this is designed to start us to think about, huh, well, what about that creation is good? What, why is God using that qualifier for good? In the, in the sense that I just said good is a person, anything God creates comes out of goodness itself. So what he creates is good by definition because it, it comes from him in the first place. Um, so let's pay some slowed down attention to Jesus now in some encounters that he had and ask ourselves over and over again the a simple question, what does Jesus think is good and why does he think it's good? What does Jesus think is good and why does he think it's good? So as I uh, read a few of these encounters, I want you to be chewing on that question in the background. I want you to be paying attention, ridiculous attention, to how Jesus is framing what good is in this encounter. And then ask yourself a deeper question. Why does he consider that good? So let's go to the first one. This is from Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. Luke 2, 41 through 52. If you're not driving, you can flip open your Bible to that and... Uh, and take a look at that, Luke 2, 41 through 52. This is where Jesus is um, young. He's speaking with the teachers in the synagogue after he has extricated himself from the party of travelers that includes his parents in Jerusalem. And this is that story where Jesus' parents leave thinking he's still at the party and they find two or three days in that, oh, he's not there. And they have to backtrack to Jerusalem and find him. And they find him sitting in the synagogue uh, debating the religious leaders there. So let's read this, Luke 2, 41 through 52. Again, the question is, what does Jesus think is good and why? Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic searching for you everywhere. Oh, well, why did you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he meant. And then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor 
with God and all the people. So a fascinating little encounter, a little story here. On the surface, we would agree with Mary, his mother, what the heck are you doing? Why did you stay back here? Don't you know what this did to us? And Jesus is, is really taken off guard by this. He has made an assumption about his parents that his parents find incredible that he would, made, would have made that assumption. Jesus was drawn to this environment where he could sit among the religious, religious teachers and listen to their teaching and ask questions and push back and give some context and insight on his own. And he just loved doing this. It's, it's almost like um, he was drawn to this place where he could talk about the thing he loves the most. If you, could, if you could go to a cabin in the woods with some people who had some of the same sensibilities as you and, and talk about what you love for a weekend retreat, that would be a rich experience. And that's what Jesus gravitated to do. And then he's surprised that his parents didn't know where he would be in Jerusalem. So uh, thinking about this question, what does Jesus think is good and why? We know just on the face of it, Jesus thinks it's good to dive deep into questions about God and the kingdom of God. He thinks that's very good to, to intentionally lean toward these kinds of questions, these kinds of environments in our life. He thinks it's good for us to sacrifice, to be around others who are pursuing a deeper relationship with God and a deeper understanding and appreciation for his heart. He thinks that's good. By extension, you could say, it's good that we go to church or find community with others who follow Jesus. That's good. And it's good when we meet to somehow, some way, talk about him. Talk about what we're learning about his heart. Talk about the, the dissonance we sometimes feel in relationship with him. And what are some possible insights about that? Talk about what it means to follow him in a culture that doesn't. Um, we know it's good to do these things because Jesus himself did it. And we also know it's good that uh, Jesus is perfectly secure in and of himself. And in a way, in this story, um, he's, he's almost assuming his parents are equally secure in themselves so that when, he, when he's not with the party, they're not worried. They're not concerned. They know he's going to be okay. Um, and he assumes that they would know where he would be, that it's just so obvious where he would be that he's kind of surprised they had to look other places. But he also understands, now this is, this is interesting here. We know Jesus never sinned, but he did apologize. <laughs> uh, he, after he says, he didn't, didn't you know that I'd be in my father's house? And it was clear they didn't understand what he meant. He gets up and returns to Nazareth with them right away. And it says he was obedient to them. So essentially, he, he comes back to them in a, in a humility of spirit, recognizing that he's hurt them and he's miscalculated um, their reaction to what he did. And he is eager, you could say, to make it up to them. Now he's paying greater attention to his obedience to them. Um, and he does this on his own. Not, it doesn't say that he was punished or anything else. He just recognizes that love means obedience in this situation. So he humbles himself, and then he starts anew with a commitment to be obedient, to, to not make the same mistake again. So we know that Jesus thought that was good. 
our humility, our bowing of the knee, our acknowledging of our own weakness and sin in a real way, and then moving from there to get up and then move and make a new commitment to obedience is a good thing. And the last verse here says, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. And so wisdom, we can easily understand that. Stature simply means that he, he uh, uh, was growing physically. And the last thing, he grew in favor with God and all the people, meaning um, he interacted relationally in such a way that he won the favor, not just of his own father, um, but all of the people that he had contact with, he won their favor. They, they respected him. They liked him. They enjoyed him. And Jesus thought that was good too. Yeah, of course, he went on to upend a lot of uh, temple tables in his future, both re in reality and metaphorically. But this growing in favor with people means that he understood what it looked like to serve others to love others, to care about others, and to pay attention to others. It's interesting that embedded in this story, Jesus assumes his parents would know where he would be because he assumes they've studied him and they've paid ridiculous attention to him. What he learns is they, they haven't paid as close of attention to him as he thought. But what you learn through that is that it's a value in the kingdom of God to pay ridiculous attention to others as well to study them, to pay attention to their details, to celebrate their nuances, um, to, to know enough of their nuances that you could give a good gift to that person that would hit them right in their heart when they never would see it coming. That comes only from studying people well, for pay, from paying ridiculous attention to them. So let's, let's skip over now to another, to another story. This is in Luke chapter 5 verses 33 through 39. Uh, this is where Jesus is responding to questions about fasting. So the question again is, what does Jesus think is good and why does he think it's good? So here we go. Luke 5, 33 through 39. One day, some people said to Jesus, well, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Jesus responded, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. Someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Then Jesus gave them this illustration. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment, for then the new garment would be ruined and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. But no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine, they say. So here Jesus is at his metaphoric best. He is, again, it's a dissonance-producing encounter. The people that are listening to him give this answer are thinking, what the heck is he talking about? I don't get it. But here he is, if we go back to our question, what does Jesus think is good and why? Here he's raising this issue of the, the, the practice that is common amongst the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees to fast and pray. But the context of that fasting and praying, we catch, catch this nuance here, the concept of the fasting and the praying 
is a performance, something that you do to win the favor of God, a practice that you, that you make as a ritual to, it's probably too strong to say to appease God, but it's in that realm. And here Jesus is saying, well, why would you do that when you're at a wedding feast for the groom? That's the time to celebrate. And by extension, what he's saying is, when you are with me, celebration is a very perfectly reasonable response <laughs> and not, not uh, self-flagellation or withholding something. Actually, when you're in your, the presence of me, let's celebrate. Let's have a party. Let's eat and drink. Let's enjoy our relationship. So Jesus here is saying, there is an old way that, that has centuries and millennia of history. There is an old way of doing things. But I've come to represent a new way of doing things that is a new iteration of that old way. And why would we want to go back to the old way? The old way can't handle the new way, and the new way can't handle the old way. The new way represented by me is no longer performance-based. It's celebration-based. It's joy-based. It's desire-based. It's, it's enjoying the company of one another fully based. So all of these things are good. And they are good because, again, Jesus's end game is to complete the restoration of our intimate relationship with him. And people who feel relaxed, safe, and intimate with one another, fully seen and fully enjoyed, they like to laugh and celebrate and eat together and banter and, and relate with each other in a, from a place of rest. Um, there's nothing better than that. You probably remember certain nights or certain encounters you had with, with close friends that you'll never forget because something magical happened that night. You felt an intimacy and a closeness and a safety, and you felt like you were fully yourself and you were fully seen for who you are. And more than that, you were enjoyed for who you are. This is what Jesus is really talking about. The kingdom of God, he's come to bring a kingdom where that is the norm. And that's the kind of culture he's trying to plant amongst his disciples. He's not trying to teach them a new iteration of deprivation. He's instead trying to teach them joy, what joy looks like. And joy is always embedded in relationships. So what does Jesus think is good and why? Jesus thinks that performance is not good but celebration is good uh, when you're in his presence. Jesus thinks that community, where we see one another and pay ridiculous attention to one another and uh, celebrate and enjoy one another is a very good thing and, and that it shouldn't be stopped. That this whole idea that religious practice means to deny yourself, Jesus continually undermines that shallow thinking about what it means to follow him. In instead, the best way to describe this is following me should be like a moving party. Um, that's what I intend. And that's the new wine that I want to, um, that's the new wine I want to bring into your life. Let's do one last story. This is from Luke 10, 25 through 37. This is where Jesus clarifies what loving your neighbor means. So this is from Luke 10, 25 through 37. Here we go. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, 
Well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, well, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you'll live. Well, the man wanted to justify his actions, whatever those were. So he asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? And so Jesus, instead of answering him directly, replied with this story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, um, he also passed on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. And going over, him, go, going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Then Jesus says, now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, well, the one who showed mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Uh, a few short words, yes, now go and do the same, six or seven words, but oh my gosh, huge. Remember, Jesus' standard for love in the kingdom of God is loving your enemies. It's not loving those who love you back. His standard, his, the quality of love that Jesus lives and expresses and is inviting us into is love for our enemies. And he tells here a story of a marginalized man who is um, habitually treated with disdain by polite society. He's the only one who stops and with generosity of heart reaches out to help, help a man who's been attacked and in need. Now, it's interesting. I just had a conversation with my oldest daughter, Lucy, today. There's a phrase that I use in almost every book I write called going into the cave on behalf of others. That phrase comes from a scene from the Lord of the Rings where Aragorn, the, the uh, uh, true king of Gondor, who is going to lead the forces of good against the forces of evil, faces a momentous decision he is told by an older mentor that the only way the side of good can, can really find victory in this great battle is if Aragorn goes to the mountain of doom. <laughs> it's a mountain where the dead souls of an entire army reside and they, they uh, have never gone to rest because they were cowards and betrayed their, the former uh, from eras ago king of Gondor. So they, these ghosts live in this sort of in-between place inside this mountain. And this older mentor tells Aragorn, you have to go recruit those ghosts. If they fight on your behalf, you can win the battle. So Aragorn sets off to go to this mountain of doom himself. And his two friends find out that he's going there and they insist on going with him. And they, 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 they ride their ponies through this narrow little valley until they come to the mouth of this opening into the mountain. And, oh, and their, their horses run away as soon as they get off of them. It's just a fearful, scary place. And over the, the opening is a, is a sort of a saying. And the saying says, all who enter here will die. And Aragorn looks at it, reads it, looks at his buddies and says, I'm not afraid of death. 
and he enters into the cave and then his buddies just sort of reluctantly follow him. It's always been such a profound metaphor for me for what our life is really all about. It's about going into the cave on behalf of others. It means that you look death in the face and you say, I'm not afraid of death. And sometimes that death uh, metaphorically is the problems and issues and brokenness of another person. Will you enter in? Like this man, for instance, this Samaritan man who enters into the cave on behalf of this man who's been attacked. And what I was talking about with my daughter is the people, uh, everyone experiences trauma, hardship, difficulty in life, everyone. We all, we all experience it. But the difference between um, the, just experiencing a trauma and, and the, the impact of that on a person who now is able to go into the cave on behalf of others is what you do in the cave. Um, some people, when they're in the cave, shut down and they say, God, you aren't who you, I thought you were. The promises you gave me aren't coming true. The expectations I had are shattered. I'm shutting down from you. That, that's one reaction that many people have in the midst of trauma. Another reaction in the midst of the cave is this hurts so bad. I, I don't even know how I can shoulder the pain that I'm experiencing right now, but I'm going to keep my hands open to you, Jesus. I am not going to shut my heart down from you. Please enter in to my pain. Those people that do that in the cave emerge, on the out, uh, emerge out of that cave with a capability of going into caves on behalf of others, meaning going into that cave in a relaxed way, not to fix the other person's problem, but to be with them in that cave. People that keep their hands open to Jesus in the midst of their trauma find out on the other side of that that they, can now, they now have the ability to, in a, from a place of rest, enter into the cave on behalf of others. And here Jesus is highlighting a despised Ser a Samaritan, quote unquote, who does just that for an injured traveler. So what you know, what does Jesus think is good? Jesus thinks it's good when a broken, marginalized person who knows they are allows that to become a source of generosity instead of a source of stinginess, which it could easily become. You know, you hold on tight now because, uh, you know, uh, bad things can happen, so I better hold on tight. This guy, instead, the experience of trauma and marginalization has left his hands open. He's become more generous, not less, because of the terrible treatment he's experienced in life. He, he has a sense of what it feels like to be broken and in need, and he has a visceral reaction that's like breathing. He's not making decisions to go help. He just is compelled to help, and not just to help, but to get personally involved in this guy's issues, to, to, to make it cost him something to come alongside this man. It costs him time and it costs him money and it costs him emotional space. It, there's costs all over the place. This, this sense that of a person who's been through a trauma and a brokenness and has experienced the grace of Jesus and therefore is emboldened and uh, supplied with the strength to give generously to others, to give in a pig way, all in way, which is what this guy does, Jesus absolutely loves this. And he tells this man, go and do the same thing. That essentially what he's saying is that's what goodness is. 
this story shows you what goodness is. And it's the same goodness in me. And it's the same standard for goodness that the Trinity uses. And you could get back to the whole John Krasinski, some good, no, some good news show and say that we see examples of some of this generosity of spirit, broken people being generous with other broken people. Some of his stories show exactly that. And that's where they hearken back, whether unconsciously or not, to the standard of goodness that is Jesus. Again, everything Jesus says and does is by definition good. And his stories, like this parable, have goodness embedded in them if we just pay attention. So there you have it. There's three encounters, three different ways of approaching how Jesus uh, qualifies what goodness is. Now, one thing we know for sure about this moment or season in our life, this very difficult moment or season in our life, where darkness, maybe you're living in a dark cave right now. Jesus does not want to waste the pain we've experienced. He doesn't want to waste the pain we've experienced. He wants good to come out of it. I actually, uh, my church um, is a Zoom church, like right now, like probably most of yours, the church is on a screen. And my pastor at my church asked me to uh, give him uh, a week off and, and preach in his place this last weekend. So I'll uh, put a link to that sermon um, on our podcast page. It is all about uh, Jesus not wasting the pain that we experience and what, how do we respond to his desire to not waste our pain? What do we do? That's what the sermon's about. So I'll put a link on our podcast page if you want to go watch that. Um, there you have it. Now, uh, if, our, if our bent is to look for the bad right now, we will not be able to see the good. And so part of what Jesus is inviting us to do in the midst of our, these seasons of life where we're in pain is to set ourselves to look for good, to find his goodness around us. And if we make that habitual, if we are always pushing it back against the bad, not in a Pollyanna way, but in a real way that we're always looking for signs of his goodness in the midst of our dark caves, this then becomes like breathing for us. If our mission in life is to gather evidence of his goodness, then when Jesus says, seek and you shall find, he's, he, he really means it. If you're seeking goodness around you, you'll find it. And if you're not seeking goodness, you won't find it. We have to seek it to find it. So, of course, the pandemic is not good, <laughs> but Jesus is the foreman of the good factory. No matter what raw materials are delivered at his door, the only thing he knows how to make is good. So whatever you got going on in your life right now, just bring him that raw material. Bring the raw material to the, to the door of the good factory. Ring the doorbell and offer it to him. Let him take it and make it into something beautiful. Stop just for a second now. Um, if, you're, if you're driving, do not close your eyes. But if you're not, close your eyes for a second. And just ask Jesus this simple question. If you're driving, just keep your eyes open, but ask the same question. Jesus, what's one good thing you've recrafted from the raw material of this bad thing in me? In these last three months, what's one good thing you've recrafted from the raw material of this bad thing in my life? Now just pause for a second and see what he has to say.
Got it? Excellent. So um, whatever that thing is, you can worship him for that thing. You can chew on that thing. You can, um, you can invite him into that thing. You can celebrate that thing. You can eat and drink instead of fast for that good thing. Um, just, just recognize the artistry of what Jesus has just shown you he's done in your life and let that lead to worship in you. All right, there we have it. Gang, this has been uh, season five, episode 21 of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. And I really do encourage you to subscribe if you haven't before to make sure that once we emerge on the other side of this, uh, after July 1st, when I'm no longer at group, we emerge on the other side of this, you can make sure you continue to get this. So I encourage you to subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts from. And don't forget to go to paintridiculousattentiontojesus.com and look for season five, episode 21. You can find the links that I've promised to give you, including a link to that episode of John Krasinski's Some Good News. If you haven't seen it, we'll put a link to that as well. And gang, um, we will see you next week for my last podcast episode before we make this big transition. We'll see you then.